for our time then this morning. Let us return to that chapter we read in Isaiah chapter 63. In my introduction, we should notice that here we have the prophet praying. And we might basically say he began his prayer in the previous chapter, in chapter 62. And he doesn't finish praying until he goes on to chapter 64. And you may well remember that last Lord's Day we chose for our text from, verse, from chapter 63, verse 1. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bosra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And we notice there that as he was praying, the prophet received a vision. And he received a vision of this glorious person who was coming. And we basically chose for our text these words, who is this? And we came to the conclusion that this was a mighty deliverer. And we noticed that in the first instance, this mighty deliverer was going to deliver the people who were in captivity in Babylon. In other words, God was going to move and God was going to work. And he was going to visit his people who had been kept captives, slaves in Babylon for 70 years. And God had promised in his word that he would fulfill his promise. And the prophet saw that person, saw God moving and working. Now, we will not confine the application of this prophecy simply to that period in the history of the church. We would have noticed that this is what God does in occasions. He moves and he works for his people. His people are in bondage. His people are trapped. His people are downtrodden. And there are many occasions throughout the, the Bible and throughout church history when this prophecy has been fulfilled. God has moved wonderfully, gloriously, transformed the state of the church. And therefore we took encouragement from this. And as the prophet then carries on to pray, he begins to pray there in verse 7. After seeing the vision, he begins to pray. And this is what we want to look at this, uh, this morning. We want to look that after he saw this glorious person who was going to come and redeem his ancient people, he continues to pray. And we want to choose for our text this morning, uh, verse 11. But we will be drawing from the, from the other verses. But our text is mainly summed up in verse 11 of, of Isaiah chapter 63. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people, saying, Where is he? that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock. Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him? And we want to look at the question that's found in that text. It is, where is he? And that's the title 
for our meditation this morning. Where is he? And if we then just briefly draw our minds back to the the text we had last week in in verse 1. Who is he? Well, he found out who that person was. It was a glorious person. And therefore, when he began to pray again, he wanted to know where was this person? Where is he? Where is this person that I saw? Where is he now? And friends, this is something for us to adopt. I can only speak about my own Christianity. I've been a Christian now since 1988. And I do believe that in that period of time, the church has been declining. You will read about what God has done in the past. And we have to conclude that in where we are today, in the Western world, God is not doing the things that he did in times past. We would say, and it could well be argued by people who are far more historically minded than myself, that the church has been in decline for 150, 200 years. We're in decline. I don't want to cause any despondency among any one of you, but we have to face facts. We have to be realistic. The church is declining. There's no doubt about it. We don't have an influence. No one really cares about the church. Governments don't care about the church. Business people don't care about the church. All those in education don't care about the church. They think the church is redundant. They think the church is like a dinosaur. It's had its day. That's the reality. It is not breaking any confidence that there are people in our own presbytery and there are people in other presbyteries belonging to our denomination who are asking this question, what is happening? What about the decline? What can we do about the decline? And one of the problems that we face as a people who are in decline, we might begin to just accept it. We might just say, well, this is the way it's going to be. And we might just say, well, that's it. There's nothing we can do. Well, that's not the spirit of the prophet Isaiah. Having seen this person and this deliverer come, who was going to come, he's now crying out to the Lord his God, where is he? And friends, this is something that we want to do ourselves and to adopt ourselves. Where is God? Where is God? What are we as Christians? As Christians, Christ is in us by his Spirit. That is true of every single Christian. 
It doesn't matter the level of your spirituality. It doesn't matter about your, your holiness. If you're truly a Christian, you have the Spirit of the living God in you. You have been born again by the Spirit of God. And that Spirit will never leave you. It is your deposit. It is your guarantee that one day you shall be resurrected and glorified. And you shall be with Christ for all the ages of eternity, however that unfolds. But friends, where is God among us? You know, the Apostle Paul, when we looked at it, we maybe didn't dwell upon it that much, but when we looked at 1 Corinthians, one of the problems they had in 1 Corinthians was they were in confusion over the spiritual gifts. And Paul was telling them that where the gifts will be rightly administered, people will know that God is among you. They were getting all excited about speaking in tongues, but the Apostle Paul was saying to them, he would far rather speak five or six words that everyone could understand. And he was telling them about the necessity of proclaiming the word of God so that when people would come into their assemblies, they would know that God was among them. Whereas if they were just speaking in tongues, it would be utter confusion and a stranger who didn't know anything about it would be confused. And this is what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 25. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. Here, friends, is a distinguishing mark of a congregation, of a Christian congregation. God is in you of a truth. Can we say that when we gather week by week? Can we say that when we gather on Wednesday evening? Let us be fair. Let us be honest. Let us be open. Let us ask this question. Is this true of Partick FCC? When we gather, we seek to worship God the way that he has prescribed. But can we say that God is among us of a truth? Or can we not surely adopt the prayer of Isaiah? Where is he? Where is he? Well, I hope you know where I stand. We know, of course, that God is omnipresent. We know that. There's no place in the universe that we can hide from God. He is omnipresent. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about His gracious presence moving among us. And can we say, that is the case. 
Maybe we can. But surely we, we, we can also say we want to see more of it. Can we not say that? And therefore, this prayer, where is he? Surely it is apt and appropriate for us to take this upon our lips and to cry out because there is a glorious person who has come. Who's that person? That person is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the great King and Head of the Church. He has come and he has done wonderful things. And friends, throughout the running centuries, the Lord Jesus Christ by his Spirit moves and works in his church. This is what we cry out for. This is what we look for. And this, we do believe, is what we lack today. I want to draw one or two things from this long prayer. It is long because he is touching many, many things. And I can only touch upon one or two things that we find in this prayer. But we find it, as he's, after he's seen the vision, he begins to pray in verse 7. And I want to draw maybe four things if we have time from his prayer this morning. The first thing, friends, that he notices is the Lord's goodness. Verses 7 to 9. Let us read verse 7, for instance. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. Oh, does he not notice there, friends? Does he not acknowledge the great goodness of our God? If you like, there's two bookends to this text. And both bookends have loving kindness here and they have loving kindness there. And it's in the plural. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord. And does he not finish according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses? Friends, here is something that we are to take before our God when we come to pray, when we come to cry out unto him. We are to acknowledge his loving kindnesses. God is merciful. God is gracious. Surely the Christian church and we ourselves are not what we should be. This is what he's acknowledging here, that in captivity. But despite that, he acknowledges the loving kindness of God. Despite whatever situation we find ourselves in, as a church... As a congregation or as individuals. And you'll all have your own cares and concerns. You'll all have your disappointments. You'll all have your, your heartaches. And you might feel as if somehow you've been hard done by. But friends, you must realize this is some one of the characteristics or the attributes of God. God is full of loving kindness. God is good. And he cannot be anything else but good. No matter what our circumstances. A couple of verses from Titus would be appropriate to quote here. For us to remember what we wear. What we wear before God touched us by his grace. Paul tells those in 
in Crete through Titus. Titus chapter 3 verse 3, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. What a picture of the natural man. What a picture of those who are outside of Christ today. Hateful, hateful and hating one another. Do we not see that opening up in the past week, for instance? When we talk about what happened to one of the candidates who wants to be the, the first minister of Scotland... Oh, we're not going to go off and digress on this matter. But you see the hatred that was poured out upon that individual. You see it continually. Well, friends, what we must recognize is that this was our lives. This was our position before Christ came into our lives. Before we were transformed. Before the grace of God changed us and brought us into his kingdom. You know, the next verse... Verse 4 of chapter 3 of Titus. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. If you are a Christian this morning, you may well be having a hard time. You may be struggling with flesh and blood. But you cannot doubt the kindness and the mercy and the grace and the love of God. We, you have experienced it and you need to look up and to be thankful and grateful. Because this is how the prophet begins to pray again. I will mention the loving kindness of, Lord, of the Lord. And because the Lord is full of loving kindness. He's going to pour out his heart to the Lord. He's going to pour out his heart to the Lord. That the Lord would move and work. Why? Because God is merciful and God is gracious. And God is full of loving kindness. And here we are as a Christian church. We're despised, we're rejected, we're hated, we're persecuted in this world and we're going to cry out to the living God that he might hear us and that he might move on behalf of his cause. And we have a wonderful incentive because our God is full of loving kindness. And you know, friend, if you're a Christian, oh, what a blessing it is to be a Christian. If you're a Christian, you have been loved in eternity and you will be loved throughout all eternity God's love can never be taken from you God is eternal his love upon his people is eternal and therefore we have a great incentive to go to the Lord our God to cry out to him that he might look upon us I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord Unbeliever, oh, is this not a wonderful incentive for you to turn away from this world and to seek the Lord? This one is loving. This one is full of tenderness. This one, the great God that we worship and adore, he is full of loving kindnesses to his people. You know, I hope you know this. There was nothing special in Israel. 
Israel as a people were nothing special. There was nothing in them. God loved them. Why? Because God loved them. That's all. And it's the same for the Christian. But this attribute of God is indeed to encourage us. You will notice there, friends, that he, in verse 9, for instance, the prophet, as part of his prayer, says, In all their affliction he was afflicted. Now, the people of Israel were afflicted on many occasions during their history. If you know anything about the Old Testament and the history of Israel, you will know that they were afflicted. They went through difficult times. And here the prophet is saying, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And now there's two ways that we can understand this. And to be honest with you, I'm not exactly sure which way we are to understand it. But there are two possible interpretations of this. In all their afflictions, he was afflicted. And some people understand this to mean that when the people were afflicted, God was with them in all their afflictions. Let's be clear. God cannot suffer. He cannot be afflicted. It's impossible. But when his people were afflicted, he in some sense was with them and bringing them through that affliction. And that surely is good divinity. Because we will know, friends, that when we go through affliction, God is with us. God is with his people. He never abandons, totally abandons his people. But it also can be translated like this. We have it here, for instance, in all that affliction he was afflicted. But it can be translated like this. In all their affliction there was no affliction. And that puts a different emphasis on it. And what that would teach us is, friends, that when they were afflicted, he blessed their afflictions to them. He blessed them. So that, relatively speaking, there was no affliction. Now that could well be true for the people that first received this prophecy. They were put into captivity because of their idolatry. When they went into captivity, and they were there for 70 years, they were cured of their idolatry. The affliction had a positive effect upon them. And therefore this interpretation may well also be true. In all their affliction, he blessed their afflictions. And how many of us can hold up our hands today and say honestly that we have been afflicted on occasions, yet although these afflictions were sore to uh, flesh and blood, yet they had a positive effect upon us. So that they were in effect no afflictions at all. They worked out for our eternal well-being. Spurgeon says this, quote, The glowing flames of Isaiah's heart unloosed the bonds of his tongue. He had to speak 
and the theme that suggested itself to him was the loving kindness of the Lord. He was overwhelmed with what he saw coming in the future, with the future triumphs of Emmanuel and the overthrow of Israel's foes. Friends, if our dwelling upon this last week has done anything to us, it should cause us to be like Isaiah and cry out, where is this person? Secondly, secondly, let us notice here from the prayer, Israel's sinfulness. Verse 10, but they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore he was turned to be their enemy and he fought against them. Here he is acknowledging that they were in captivity because of their sin. It's as clear and as plain as that. And what was true for Israel is also true for the church throughout the running centuries. You will notice that the, the state of the church waxes and wanes. That's been the pattern. That was the Old Testament pattern and that has been the pattern throughout church history. It's up and down. And when it's down, it's because of sin. It's as clear as that. God sent them into captivity because of their idolatry. They had been warned on many, many occasions and they refused to repent. And therefore, we are to draw this application to ourselves. We are where we are because of sin. There's no hiding it. There's no running away from it. Now, as we said, we do believe the decline is not just the last few years. It's been going on for decades, a couple of centuries at least. And what have been the sins of the church? We're not particularly talking about our own congregation here. We're talking about the the wider professing Christian church. What have been the sins of the church? Well, the church has denied the word of God. Here we have, friends, we have a, a book from God, a book that God has given to his people, the church, and he has preserved it. Yet many in the church will disown this book. They will not acknowledge it. They will say it's not inspired, it's not infallible. And they will put men's words before the word of the living God. That's what's happened in the church. So that the church no longer has a message. The church has nothing to say to the world. The world speaks to the church. And the church, what do they do? They follow the world. What's the point in coming to church? What's the point in being under a minister, for instance, if he doesn't believe the word of God? You might as well read the newspaper. That's what's happening. We must realize that we have the word of God. We have God's complete and final revelation to us. We have all that we need to find the way to heaven and to live our lives here until that time. We have everything God has keep, kept his word for us. 
And many in the church have denied the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, they recognize him as a good man. They recognize him as a, a wonderful example, the perfect man. But they don't recognize him as the God-man. They don't recognize that he is God in the flesh. And many people, friends, will accept Christ. But they don't accept the Christ of the Bible. And they might use the same kind of language that we use. They might speak like a, a Protestant. They might speak like an evangelical. They might speak reformed language, but they don't say and mean exactly the same as we do. And this is a great sin, because friends, we say this reverently, if the Lord Jesus Christ was just a man, he could never save you. He could never save you. If your hope and your trusting upon Jesus Christ, who alone is a man, then you will be disappointed because he had to be God. No one else could do what he did unless he was God. A perfect man fell. And a perfect woman fell and brought the whole of the human race into a state of sin and misery. And therefore no perfect man could ever stand against the evil one. But the God-man, he could. And the God-man could bear the wrath of God on the cross. And you must have your faith and your hope upon the God-man. The perfect God and perfect man. And when the church deny this, is it any wonder that God does not look favorably upon the church? When they deny his miracles... When they deny his teachings. Oh, they think he's a wonderful example. But oh, they don't like his doctrine. They don't like his teachings. And we see it today in this world that we live in. Even in the church. Mark chapter 8 verse 38 is apposite to quote here. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The world is ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. We would expect that. Some in the church are ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't like that, but we recognize it. But there are others in the church who will accept the Lord Jesus Christ, but who are ashamed of his words. What are his words? His word is the word of God. His words are his doctrine. And they're ashamed of his doctrine, that they might accept his person. Do you think God's going to bless a congregation or a church like that? We... Bless the whole Christ. We accept his person. We accept his word. We accept his teachings. We accept his miracles. We accept Christ as he is revealed to us in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Many deny the resurrection. Friends, if you deny the resurrection, you might as well shut your Bibles. You might as well shut the church. 
We have no gospel to proclaim. We worship, we serve a risen Lord. One who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. Oh, is that not glorious? Is that not wonderful? Is that not a message we need to hear today? Is that not what old people and young people, boys and girls, men and women need to hear today? Our greatest enemy has been destroyed. Death itself, death that has blighted mankind ever since the fall, it has been destroyed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is life. He is eternal life, friends. My time's going. Thirdly, let us notice, <clears throat> he begins to reflect. We find this in verse 11. Then he remembered the days of old. Commentators are not clear on this matter. Who reflects? It could well be that it's a prophet representing the church that's reflecting on the days of old. But others maintain here is God. Here is God reflecting. Whatever. What they are reflecting upon is basically the same. They're reflecting upon what God has done in times past with Israel. And the conclusion is, and I'm going to be brief here, the conclusion is that although they were in captivity because of their sin, yet God had been merciful and God had been gracious to them ever since the time that he called out Abraham. And all the times of Moses as they were in the wilderness. In other words, in times past, God's people had not behaved particularly well. They didn't be behave well then. But God had visited them in times past. And we would like to think that God's reflecting and saying in modern parlance, I've helped them in times past. When they were a poor people, when they were a sinful people, when they were a rebellious people, I've helped them in times past. Am I going to forsake them now? Yes, they are rebellious. Yes, they deserve to be forsaken. But God is full of loving kindness. He will only chastise for a season. This is another incentive, friends. Look at what God has done in the past. Has God changed? No. Has man changed? No. The church today is in a pathetic situation and, and, and state. No one's going to deny it. But the church has been in pathetic states in times past. And God has sent revival. That's what we long for. Around the 1700s, this world, or the UK, was in a dreadful situation. Gin shops 
all over the place. Women drinking themselves foolish with cheap gin. The church was dead and lifeless. The gospel wasn't being proclaimed. Pulpits were full of men who did not know and did not love the Lord Jesus Christ. God moved. God worked. This is our hope. This is our incentive. Knowing there is a great Redeemer, we now cry out to him, where is he? This is what we long for. For God to move and to work. That's our only hope. Where is he? He's in heaven. He hasn't changed. Let us call upon him. As he said earlier, we didn't read it today, but we read it last week. Give him no rest. That's what's required of God's people. And we have this glorious incentive. The loving kindness of God. His reflection on things that happened in times past. And although our sins are great and they are many, God is able to forgive and to overcome all our sins.